When I turn on my TV and I see groups of students yelling, gas the Jews, that's not freedom of speech. That's calling for murder. How can we be supportive of that? Oh, because of systemic oppression? What is that? Dr. Tabia Lee is a former DEI educator at De Anza College. She was fired for refusing to follow their critical social justice approach. Today, she's trying to reform California's mandatory ethnic studies high school curriculum. She argues it's infused with extremist ideology, including anti-Semitism. They're not learning about the actual history of the region. They're not learning and understanding indigeneity and what that means. They're learning a twisted version of it that supports a terrorist vision of the world. I never thought I would see something like that in America. The support of terrorist groups from our students. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Lee, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Thank you, Jan. Well, you know, we've got such good reactions to our last interview. Um, and since that time, actually, you've taken on a number of new roles, and I want to talk about this. Um, you know, notably, you're working on, I don't know if this is the right term, but revitalizing ethnic studies curriculums or, um, you know, kind of bringing in some new ideas and vibrancy. So, so tell me about that. Yes, yeah, so I'm very happy to be working as director for the Coalition uh, for Empowered Education. And in my capacity there, I am uh, serving as director of education and building a nationwide teacher network uh, to help teachers to uh, learn more about different approaches to ethnic studies um, to counter the default approach, which is a liberated ethnic studies model, um, and to help support teachers in engaging, you know, more humanistic and, and holistic pedagogies around ethnic studies and gender studies, um, which are important areas which have come into the mainstream. They used to be like fringe things on campuses, but they're definitely mainstreamed now, um, and we're seeing some of the fruits of, of their labor um, in the streets. Um, with the many protests that we're seeing uh, across the, the, the world at this time. Well, okay, so, so let's dive in. You know, what is this liberated uh, approach that you're describing? You know? Yes, uh, this is again where we have a, a, a subversion of language. So when you hear liberated, you think of people being freed and freedom um, and a focus on that. But really what we're seeing in this model is a critical social justice infused um, understanding of liberation, of ethnic studies, of gender studies as well. Um, this means, what do I mean by that? A critical social justice approach uh, is one that really emphasizes privilege and oppression and power in every interaction. Um, it sees racism and race in every disparity or uh, human interaction. It, it encourages us to focus on what are our checkboxes of identity, what are our racial checkboxes, what are our ethnicity checkboxes, what are our gender-based checkboxes. Um, and then certain people are elevated into positions of being able to speak on matters and others are supposed to be silent and let their representatives uh, speak for them. Uh, sometimes it's called standpoint epistemology. So it's this idea that, you know, because of who I am, uh, you and I could never fully understand each other uh, because uh, um, my gender and my quote race is uh, influencing and impacting everything that I've experienced. I have access to a unique knowledge that you do not have. 
um, and therefore I should be deemed the authority on any issues relating to those race and gender checkboxes that I occupy. Um, and that I will always be in that particular caste or state or understanding of you know, the world. And it really focuses on division. Right? If we can never truly understand each other because of these checkboxes, and if I have access to this you know, um, secret form of knowledge that you could never know because of your you know, standpoint and your checkboxes that you have, how do we ever get to know each other? And how do we understand each other? And how do we work together um, from that kind of you know, base uh, division and, and, and understanding of each other as humans? Well, and, and of course, you know, in this model, certain races are elevated and certain are not. Mm -hmm. and, that, and, and it's curious how that works. Yes, the ideologues who've created this, the critical social justice ideologues, um, have what they call a matrix of privilege and oppression. And sometimes they call it a matrix of domination. Um, and it's unfortunate, but our students are being taught, you know, when they come into a classroom to identify themselves on these matrices. Um, and to interact and engage with each other based on those positionings. Um, and it really flies in the face of a more classical social justice approach, which would you know, recognize human agency, free will, uh, the individual experience. Now it's a focus on group experience. Um, it's a focus on group representation. Um, it's a focus on these claims that you know America is founded on white supremacy culture and you know all of these other things that some people may not have heard of right when I when I usually hear white supremacy I think of um, white nationalists and neo-nazis and you know people of that nature but after being called a white supremacist when, when I was in my former DEI role and then trying to figure out what were these people saying and where were they coming from, I discovered this whole framework um, of basically personality characteristics um, that are being attributed to white culture. Um, and it's very degrading and demoralizing for all other people, right? Because supposedly if you're not you know, white or supporting white supremacy, uh, then you're the opposite of those characteristics. So you're not being on time. You're not being objective. Um, you're not uh, looking at the written word as an important thing. Um, all of those things are what we're told we should rail against under the critical social justice framework and that we all have a responsibility or duty to stand in solidarity with those who are oppressed. And the definition of who's oppressed and who isn't is very um, strange. And we're seeing it manifested in uh, the protests, the pro-Hamas protests on the street. Um, and some of the social media posts that have been made by these liberated ethnic studies professors who are writing the curriculum that may in influence you know, entire future generations uh, because that's what's being promoted as the model. Um, and there are other models that can be used and that's what part of my work with uh, Coalition for Empowered Education involves, raising people's awareness that there are other ways to do this work, to understand ethnic studies. Um, to study you know, ethnic studies or gender studies, you don't need to be anti-American. Um, you don't need to put people in check boxes and you know, focus on privilege and oppression. There are other ways to study and appreciate you know, what different cultures and ethnicities and groups have brought to uh, this grand experiment and to do it in a way that is not going to destroy the very fabric and tear it asunder. So basically, actual diversity and actual inclusion and, and the, the equity maybe will leave that out. 
Yeah, so we, uh, you know, um, from a classical perspective, I understand equity is fairness, but that's not what critical social justice uh, uh, proponents are understanding it as. They're understanding it as equality of outcomes um, in, in our schooling, in our education, in our economic system, in our social system, in, in every way, um, instead of focusing on equality of opportunity, which is something that, you know, uh, first and second wave, uh, some people call it that, John McWhorter is one of the scholars who I'm really thankful for, for helping frame that for people, um, to understand that, you know, anti-racist work has always existed, um, and gender-based work has always existed, but there's different waves of it. So the first and second waves were really focused on equality. And now we have this third wave um, that's very different. It's a different feminism than your uh, grandmother's feminism. It's a different uh, anti-racist effort than your grandmother and grandfather's efforts. Yeah, and so, you know, it may seem bizarre to people that this would somehow be connected with pro-Hamas protesting. And you, you observed some very interesting things while at De Anza. Essentially, you realize that this, this anti-Semitism was kind of baked into the ideology, and I want you to kind of break that down for me a bit. Yeah. Yes. Um, so at my time at De Anza, that's where I really came face to face with um, modern anti-Semitism. And that's why I, I really try to educate people on the connections uh, between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, because they are deeply connected. So I agree with uh, Rabbi Sachs and others uh, who have really made it clear for us that anti-Zionism is the new anti-Semitism. And, you know, we can quibble on university campuses about, you know, um, what is anti-Semitism, how do we define it, what definitions do we use, but in some places there are no definitions. Um, and it's very intentional. People refuse to adopt the IRA definition, they refuse to adopt any definition of anti-Semitism. Um, even when students have directly asked for it, and De Anza was one of those places. Um, instead of making a resolution to support the Jewish students' request to define anti-Semitism, so that the university could act on the deeply entrenched anti-Semitism there, the student government ended up condemning Israel and um, talking about the wrongs that it had done and um, why it was overreaching and called it a settler colonial estate and um, refer made references to apartheid. So things that weren't even related to what the students were asking for, um, just a place where you know, we could understand and come to a common definition of what is anti-Semitism to us as a learning community. Um, and these were things that took place before I arrived there. Um, and, you know, but it definitely colored the entire experience. Um, I was a member of the Equity Action Council and some of our uh, Hillel uh, local representatives came and they wanted to speak to the Equity Action Council to please uh, make the environment more inclusive of Jew Jewish student faculty and staff members. Um, and they cited that we have a website where it says, you know, anti-racism and we stand against anti-racism and here's some resources. And they said, you know, we see you have Black Lives Matter there. We see you have Stop AAPI Hate. Could you please just add a little thing saying we also stand against anti-Semitism? And when I went back with my team members and my supervising dean to talk about those recommendations that were given to us, the response I received was very telling. Um, I was told that it was not important for us to look at these issues, um, that uh, the college had received recommendations from CARE, which is the Council on Islamic Relations, and that they hadn't followed up on those either. 
Um, and so I said, well, you know, let me see those recommendations too, because I genuinely want an environment where every student feels welcome to be their most authentic selves. Those recommendations were never shown to me. I don't know if they really exist. There was a lot of instances where things were kind of hidden and not shown, uh, even when I made direct requests. So I was told that it wasn't important for us to focus on Jewish inclusion because Jewish people, to their understanding, are white oppressors and that the role of faculty and staff was supposed to focus on and center, decentering whiteness. Mm -hmm. And um, if we did you know, discussions or talks around Jewish inclusion, that wouldn't be decentering de whiteness. And so I raised to them, I said, well, that shows a misunderstanding of the Jewish diaspora and the diversity of it. Mm -hmm. Like, how can you say that Jewish people are white oppressors when it's such a diverse group and global? And they never had an answer for that. My, they, meaning my supervising dean and my staff, fellow staff members. Mm -hmm. um, it was just, no, we're not going to do that. I asked if I could have a budget to bring in speakers. I had no budget although I was the director, <laughs> I never knew my budget. Um, so all of those things were withheld and I, I went ahead and I did it anyways um, because I felt the need uh, from the needs assessment conversations, from you know everything that I had um, heard from people who came to address us directly. Um, and I just knew that this was something that we needed to address as a community. And um, Unfortunately, I didn't get the support that was needed, not just from my direct supervisor and the folks who were working directly with me, but from the institution on a whole. Um, this, the summit that I organized wasn't publicized to students. It was suppressed. Um, it didn't appear on the calendar, but then two weeks after the five-week summit that I ran, um, there was an event. Topics included things like anti-Israel, fill in the blank, anti-Zionist activism, um, and so forth, and those were highly publicized to the students. Um, when they would log into their online canvas, uh, it's like a learning management system, when they would log into their emails, it would pop up and say, come to this meeting. So our, our events weren't publicized that way. Um, and they weren't included on the calendar that way. They weren't pushed out to students. So um, sometimes we give to our former universities because you know we have fond memories of how they shaped us as scholars and you know the, the work that we did there and how inclusive it was when we were there. But many of these institutions have changed and they're drastically different. And so I encourage people if you are giving to your institution, if you're you know um, just doing it out of the, the duty of you know of tradition, go take a look at what's happening. See what's happening in these ethnic studies programs and the gender studies programs. Um, see what they're promoting to students. If it's infused with this critical social justice ideology, does that align with you and your values and what you want to see in the world? Um, these protesters that, that we're seeing in the streets, they're not popping out of nowhere. They're coming from our colleges and universities. They're supported by faculty that used to be fringe, but are now mainstreamed. Um, it's happening in every discipline. So you, you might think, well, I'm, I'm in the STEM area or you know, I'm studying philosophy. It has nothing to do with that. Every single discipline um, on campuses has become infused with this default perspective. And that's why I speak so much about it. Because prior to you know, a couple of years ago, folks didn't have the language to say like, they, they felt something wrong, but they couldn't say like, oh, okay, this is a critical social justice ideology. You know, mm -hmm. giving people language is, is so 
key. Uh, some people call it cultural Marxism. You know, some people call it critical race theory. Um, but critical social justice is one that captures the gender aspect of it as well as the ethnic studies aspect of it. And I think that's something that's so crucial um, because it's those checkboxes that is guiding the, the new order, if you will, that some people would like for us all to live under. Mm -hmm. um, and some of us are questioning that. Have you followed uh, whether these protests are happening in, at De Anza as well? I mean, you're essentially telling me that this is something that, from what you saw, you would expect. Yes, and, and happening throughout the Bay Area as well. Um, some faculty on campuses are, are offering their students extra credit to go be political pawns, um, to do pro-Hamas rallies in the streets. Um, the slogans that are being used are the same slogans that people reported to me that I then took to my dean and tried to get her to act on. Um, you know, when the student government at De Anzo uh, made their resolution condemning Israel when they were asked to define anti-Semitism, that instead they came up with, with that kind of action. Um, the students, the Jewish students who brought forth the resolution attempting to define anti-Semitism, they were shouted down. And they were told, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Many people haven't heard that statement until recently when you turn on your news and you see you know, uh, these protests where students are chanting that. And I think many times, Jan, I want to believe the students don't know what they're saying and what they're implying when they say that. But it really does mean from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, Palestine, whatever you conceptualize that to mean, will be quote unquote free. That means the obliteration, the destruction of Israel. That means that the state of Israel, the country will no longer exist. And it's such a dangerous thing to do and say. And I think that many of the students, they don't know geography. <laughs> um, you know, they don't know exactly the political implications. It sounds like a rhyme. Um, they're joining together. They feel like they're part of something, like they're making change. Um, we've seen these liberated ethnic studies faculty members who are writing the curriculum for the state of California come out and post similar statements on their social media. Um, they have celebrated the attacks of the, the terrorism and brutality. Um, they have made statements that this is all the result of, you know, systemic oppression. Uh, this is because of the systemic racism. You know, you hear all of these terms um, and equivalence uh, and equivocation for, for terrorism. I never thought I would see something like that in America. The support of terrorist groups and terrorist actions from our students. How are we even seeing these kinds of things on the streets day after day? I'm someone, of course, you know, you want people to have free speech and freedom of expression and, you know, academic freedom as a professor. Um, but, but where is the line drawn? When does it become hate speech? When we call for the obliteration of an entire country and people, is that too far? So each time I see these student groups, you know, coming out and saying these hateful comments and supporting um, hate speech and perspectives and supporting Hamas, which is a known terrorist organization, I wonder to myself, why are these deans quiet? Why are the presidents of these universities quiet? Is that representing, you know, their institution? 
What does their silence mean? We're often told by these critical social justice ideologues that silence equals violence and complicity, right? So what does the silence of these institutional leaders mean? But, but they do seem to be standing up for free speech all of a sudden. That's, that seems like right. a kind of a new thing, almost. Mm -hmm. And the silence tell, is so telling um, because it's, it's free speech um, and we tacitly support what's being said uh, because we're not making any statement to the, to the contrary. Mm -hmm. And so what the students are getting is, affirm that's affirmation again, you know, oh, this is, this is what we all stand for. This is what we should be standing for if we're committed to, to social justice. That's not the social justice that I've, uh, you know, taught my students about and that I've been committed to my whole life. Um, it concerns me because if you think back to 9-11, and the terrorism that took place here on American soil, and the response from student groups, from uh, educational institutions, from, from everyone at that time, there was no celebration of the martyrs. There was no saying that this was okay, the acts that took place because of the uh, hundreds of years of, of, of American imperialism and you know colonization in the Middle East and so forth. So why? is they're marching in the streets to support Hamas, a terrorist organization um, that seeks to destroy the West, the way of life that enables these students to be able to go out and protest and to make these statements and to do these things. I wonder if the students understand and recognize that they would be the first to be tamped down on if Hamas had its way. When we see the destruction of Israel, the only democracy in the Middle East, the one place where you can be yourself, where you can be an Arab Israeli, you can be a Mizrahi Jew, you can be an LGBTQ plus person freely without being beheaded, but yet we see these students holding up banners that say queers for Palestine, they would be beheaded in an instant. They will be despised. They are considered despicable. Why is that taking place? What has happened to our educational system when we see our students out there promoting anti-American sentiment and supporting terrorism? What are the dangers to us as a result of that as a society? Where are we heading with that? And why? And, and, and how, has it, how has it gotten so far? It used to be a fringe thing, but now this is mainstream, and students are being told that it's being normalized, the support of terrorism. That concerns me a great deal, because I'm someone who I love our country, and I love this nation. This is a grand experiment. It's not perfect. We have things to work on, and we always will. We're human beings, you know, trying to um, realize these aspirations that were set out in the founding documents. And some people want to destroy and shred those documents and lead us into what? What kind of system will we be in when the republic is destroyed, as so many people are calling for? I, I can't support that in, in good conscience. It's something that worries me a great deal, and I don't think we understand the danger um, that, uh, of embracing these kind of ideologies. This is everywhere, it's at our doorstep, and we all need to take a look into what's happening in our schools. Those are the breeding grounds for many of these toxic ideologies. Are you really safe in a world where our youth are being corrupted, their minds are being destroyed with terrorist propaganda and anti-American sentiment? Both you and I uh, you know, recently kind of reviewed a clip of Hamas leadership explaining what their intentions are. Mm -hmm. 
right? And I, I just want to roll that clip for the benefit of the viewers. Israel دولة لا مقام لها على أرضنا. إحنا الدولة لابد أن نزيلها لأنه بالفعل هي تعتبر كارثة أمنية وعسكرية وسياسية للأمة العربية والإسلامية يجب أن تنتهي. لذلك إحنا لا لا نخجل من نقول ذلك بكل قوة. نصير لازم نأدبها وحنأدبها مرة تانية وثالثة ومش هذا حتكون طوفان الأقصى أول مرة لا حتكون تانية وثالثة ورابعة لأنه إحنا لدينا إصرار ولدينا قرار ولدينا إمكانيات أن نقاتل نعم. ونحارب لكن كما قلت لك بدنا ندفع ثمن نعم إحنا مستعدين معلش بدي أقول لك بشكل واضح إحنا اسمنا شعب الشهداء ونفخر أن نقدم شهداء إحنا لا لا نريد أن نمس لا بالمدنيين ولا أن نلحق الأذى بهم لكن أوقات لأنه في تعقيدات في الميدان صارت في منطقة موجودة وكان هناك في احتفال وكان في سكان وفي منطقة واسعة ليست سهل على امتداد تقريبا 40 كيلو حتى يجب أن ينتهي أن ينتهي وين؟ بقطاع غزة؟ ينتهي إلى لا بتكلم عنه كل أراضي فلسطين كل الأراضي الفلسطينية يعني زوال إسرائيل؟ آه طبعا وجود إسرائيل غير منطقي وجود إسرائيل هو البخلق كل هذه الآلام والعذابات والدموع والدماء هي إسرائيل مش إحنا إحنا ضحية الاحتلال نقطة آخر السطر لذلك ما حد يلومنا إحنا شو اللي بنعمله في 7 أكتوبر في 10 أكتوبر في مليون أكتوبر إحنا اللي بنعمل مبرر It is justified مبررة It seems pretty unmistakable to me and I think information may shift some minds of people that don't actually understand what they're what they've signed up for when they join these protests Yes, and as you heard, you know, that Hamas leader say, um, anything we do is okay because we are the victim. That is the mentality of these individuals and of this worldview. So if you are of the oppressed status or victim status, any action you take, no matter how immoral, uh, no matter how brutal, Include, is okay. Including, as he says explicitly, October 7th type action. Yes, and, and justifying that and feeling proud of it, and then to see our students out celebrating and saying, it is okay because our teachers and our, our faculty members and our mentors have told us that this is the response to oppression. This is um, the response to all of the words they use, like settler colonialism, apartheid, you know, all of these things that aren't rooted in any objective reality or history, but that students have been taught and that they pair it back because they're not learning anything otherwise. They're not learning about the actual history of the region. They're not learning and understanding indigeneity and what that means. Uh, they're learning a twisted version of it that supports a terrorist vision of the world. And it's very toxic and dangerous. And we need to start taking a closer look at it uh, because it's not just people, you know, um, learned professors in, 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 you know, the small liberal arts college anymore. We're seeing this in our medical professionals. Mm -hmm. We're seeing this in our um, athletes. We're seeing this in every aspect of life uh, on, the, on the campus and off the campus in civic life. And it's really deeply concerning to see our helping professions, you know, teachers, medical, healthcare, um, proposing and, and stating this toxic ideology, um, thinking of their patients and their students and the people there, they are to serve, right, as victims or oppressors, um, as some people um, should receive certain levels of care and others should not because of their um, oppressor status or victim status. Like, what kind of world are we headed to, you know, when our doctor or our teacher doesn't look at us as an individual, but they see us as a group representative 
and um, we should be held accountable for everything that that group has done historically, uh, whether it's historically objectively true or not, it, based on the narrative that's being taught many times, and a toxic one at that. You know, um, when I turn on my TV and I see groups of students yelling, gas the Jews, that's not freedom of speech. That's something else. That's calling for murder. That's supporting killing innocent people. How can we be supportive of that? Oh, because of a, a systemic oppression? What is that? I've observed that there's a conflation, okay, of the idea of protesting against war at all, for example. Some people are just very committed to being anti-war. Um, and various types of Israeli policy, like for example, Gaza invasion or not, or simply not liking the current Israeli leadership, right, with the idea of whether, for example, Israel should be allowed to exist at all, which is this, which is the Zionism you were talking about earlier. A lot of confusion about this. Mm -hmm. and I'm wondering if you, if you want to speak to that at all. Yes, I think that we have lost, unfortunately, um, a lot of our understanding of world history, historical events, the chronology of the world and things that have happened. Um, something that stands out to me, Jan, is that whenever Israel is attacked, there is an immediate call for them to stand down and to not defend themselves. And I have a big problem with that. You know, I am not someone who supports war, but to say that a country doesn't have a right to defend itself or that they should immediately begin diplomacy. You know, over 200 uh, hostages have been taken and, you know, we have this situation of just uh, brutal terrorism. I, I find that so interesting that Israel is held to different standards than every other nation in the world. And we see these statements coming out of the United Nations and, you know, other organizations, and they're always the same. And I just wonder, why is that? And I think it's the deeply rooted anti-Semitism, again, rearing its head. Um, and it's really visible for so many of us. And that's creating an environment for Jewish students on campus of fear and intimidation. And not just Jewish students, Zionist students, because sometimes people say, oh, you know, it's just Jewish people who are Zionists. There are many people who are not Jewish who are also Zionists, who support the right of Israel to self-determination and to exist. So these environments are toxic, not just for Jewish students, but for all students, for freedom, for viewpoint diversity. We're seeing actual students who are holding up, you know, their flags in support of Israel being attacked by, by students holding um, um, Hamas flags and Palestinian flags and so forth. Um, and that's not okay. We're seeing students being locked into the libraries of their schools. You know, it's easy for some people to say, well, that's just those, those students. They're a small number. You know, it doesn't affect me. It does affect you. In those kind of environments where we see authoritarianism advancing, where we see exclusion, it never just stops with the Jewish people. It marches onward to the next group and the next group. And people need to understand that part of history uh, because history is repeating itself. And some of us are so unaware because we don't have the knowledge of what's taken place so that we can say, no, we don't, we don't want that kind of world again. And we're so rapidly heading to that. You know, you talked about how, you know, this ideology is manifesting in the medical profession. Some of the information I've been hearing is shocking. Mm -hmm. 
you were talking about, you know, disparate treatment of different identity groups, mm -hmm. right? By doctors? Yes. So, so tell me about that. Yes, so encouragement in their medical training and in, in their you know, um, certificate programs, we're not focusing on medical competency or you know, compassionate care anymore. It's this infusion of the critical social justice ideology. We have doctors laying on the ground participating, and medical students laying on the ground participating in die-ins where they say that to protest this idea or that idea, they're laying and pretending that they are dead. Um, why do we see our medical professionals saying that they're going out to pro-Hamas rallies and that being part of their practicums? How, how does that help them to be more compassionate doctors and to serve their patients? What about the Jewish patient or the Zionist patient or fill in the blank, you know, patient that doesn't um, fit the narrative of critical social justice ideologues, when they come to that medical professional for care, do they get a, di a different kind of care? Um, we've seen some statements made by medical professionals on social media, very out in the open, celebrating the acts of Hamas. Um, so how is that keeping us safe? Even in the psychology field, we're seeing the American Psychological Association, um, some of their high leadership coming out and saying they want to classify um, Zionist perspective as a psychosis. So <laughs> there's, there's all kinds of toxic things happening under this ideology and attempts to redefine what is a psychosis, what is competent care. And, you know, with, with doctors and psychiatrists, perhaps psychologists as well, you know, the, I think the whole idea is the, the person could be the worst criminal you actually provide the care because they're a human being. So this is a complete undermining of that. Yes, yes, and I fear for the patients uh, who will be under the care of people who have been trained in these ideologies. Uh, how could they ever see the person sitting in front of them as an individual when they've been taught and accepted that the person in front of you is a representative of their gender checkbox or their, um, their race checkbox or the intersections you know, uh, between those different identities and, and some of them are more oppressed than others. Um, and these are fields that should be focused on the individual mm -hmm. and, you know, personalization and compassionate care, um, teaching and learning of the whole individual child that's right there in front of you in the, in the case of educators. There's uh, groups, I think you, I think it's White Coats for Black Lives. There's a few groups that you've written about recently. White Coats for Black Lives has chapters in over 100 um, American public and private universities. So sometimes we think like, oh, they're not in the public school, you know, my child's in an elite uh, private university. Well, they're there too. It, 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 there's no um, space that has, where this ideology hasn't crept in and, and, and hasn't captured, you know, some of the higher levels of administration and faculty um, who are then impacting students as well. Um, behind all of these student groups are faculty advisors who encourage them, uh, who support the students, who give them extra credit to go out to political rallies, um, who influence grades based on you know, what they say and what they write and if it aligns with the ideology or not. And that's, that's so saddening because what happened to critical thinking? What happened to the ability to do research and scholarship and um, you know, all of those things that, that we used to value in our educational institutions, but now 
it's this, you know, um, expression of fidelity to the orthodoxy, that's the most important thing. That's more important than your knowledge or innovation or, you know, things that you're um, doing with your peers. Uh, they should all be focused on uplifting the oppressed instead. And, and who defines the oppressed? These ideologues. And how do they define it? Sometimes in ways that aren't rooted in any objective reality. It's rooted in their want to spread uh, anti-Semitism, uh, anti-women, uh, anti-American you know, um, ideas throughout the society. So there's been this concept of decolonization that's been mentioned uh, again and again over the past weeks. And mm -hmm. that's, so what does that actually mean? Yes, the way I've heard it explained by critical social justice ideologues um, is that it's a decolonization of our minds, of our ways of being in the world, um, of our ways of understanding the world and each other. Um, because supposedly our minds have been uh, colonized due to our you know, um, constant oppression um, and the, uh, you know, the things that we experience uh, living in a nation that they claim was founded under um, white supremacy and white supremacy culture. Um, so some of the, the people at De Anza, when they would do their workshops, they would talk about this decolonization of the mind um, and of our learning spaces. Mm -hmm. And that meaning that all the white supremacy culture characteristics that they'd identified, being on time, being objective, all of these other just personality characteristics and traits, um, we would actively work to not evidence those, to not embody those things, um, to not support people who promote those types of things. Um, and really, when we think about um, this whole idea of the colonial, uh, the, the settler colonialists and so forth, it really speaks to like an ignorance, again, of the geopolitics, of the history of the region, of indigeneity and who is indigenous to Judea and Samaria. Um, and uh, a willful ignorance around that. These are documented in history, in the books, um, in the research, and the things that we've found and seen about you know, the past uh, thousands of years of human history. It's not some, something like, oh, oops, we, we just don't know. Um, it's a painting uh, and, and a misrepresentation of history that's very intentional, and it aligns with the anti-Semitism that undergirds it. So what, what does decolonization mean in the context of the Israel-Hamas war now? Well, from the social media posts that we're seeing from these liberated ethnic studies folks, um, that means that the uh, Hamas terrorists who did the actions that they did on October 7th and, and before and you know since that time are justified because uh, they were oppressed and that's the natural reaction to oppression. You don't see me engaging with that a lot, Jan, because it's malarkey. It's a bunch of gobbledygook. It's not related to objective history or, or facts, or it's not rooted in objective reality. It's a fantasy um, that has gone widespread. It's a virus that has gone into the minds of our youth, into the minds of our administrators and faculty and so forth. And the way that we see them in the streets so violently yelling and screaming and free Palestine, free Gaza from Hamas. No one's talking about that part. Uh, this is a battle that involves ideas and civilizations and global and world civilizations. And if you don't understand the connections 
between the only democracy in the Middle East and America as a society and why it's important for America to always stand with Israel, then I have some questions about that. Some people say, like you mentioned, oh, we're just against war. We just don't want any war to happen. Mm -hmm. Great. What do you do when your nation is attacked? When your citizens are brutalized and murdered in their beds? When your children are kidnapped and your Holocaust survivors and elderly people and all of these people are taken? Do you sit down and chat with the people who did it or do you have another response? And if you are sitting down and chatting, what does that tell an organization of terrorists who say, we've done it and we will do it again and again? They're not going to stop and they will not stop at Israel. It will be here as well. And it saddens me to see in the streets our young people laying out the welcome mat to their own destruction. In 2001, basically immediately after 9-11, a young guy, young guy my age at the time, I was a young guy, um, saying America's reaping what it sowed, right? I haven't thought about him in a while, um, but I'm wondering if there isn't many more like him that have now been taught or indoctrinated. And I'm very worried about that. We have the, we've had this open border, and you know I don't know. Some people don't like call it an open border, but there's at least seven or eight million people that have come across it. Many of them really have no idea. And you, of, of course, you would imagine that people that wish the West or America harm would have you know pushed some of their people through there. You know, what if there is a terrorist attack? How many people would be like that young man I mentioned? Mm -hmm. moments ago. You know, these are they're much less academic questions than they were once. Yes, they're, they're very real and pressing questions. Um, when you have people that are calling for the dismantling of America, American culture, American society, after you destroy everything and dismantle it, what's next? And many people can see you know, uh, the danger of that coming to our doorstep and these students celebrating that, I hope we don't have to learn the hard way that some other nations and peoples have had to learn. I've had the opportunity to speak with people in post-Soviet nations and, and, and other places. I think everyone should take a gap year and go travel. I think some of these people with, you know, their Queers for Palestine signs and, you know, all of these other things, go to Gaza See how you're received with that sign and that placard. If you got to see the world from people who are living in those oppressive environments, your perspective would maybe change a little bit. Well, Tabia Lee, it's such a pleasure to have had you on. Thank you. Thank you all for joining Tabia Lee and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelleck.